Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to research that improves health, reduces recovery times, and brings new treatments and therapies to our area before they are available elsewhere. More information is at pinnaclehealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. In the nearly 50 years since the end of Americans' involvement in Vietnam, Americans have struggled to rationalize the causes and meanings of the 20-year war and incursion. The war shaped the landscape of American culture for an entire decade, inspiring music, art, and discourse that addressed its impact on both soldiers and civilians. It forced us to redefine the roles of engagement and the way in which we treat combat veterans upon their return. Award-winning documentarians Ken Burns and Lynn Novick chronicle the war in the 18-hour film The Vietnam War. It will premiere on WITF-TV and PBS starting this Sunday at 8 p.m. Joining us to discuss the film are the series co-director Lynn Novick and executive producer Sarah Botstein. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having us. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Lynn Novick, very happy to have you on the program today. This is a project that's been described as you and Ken Burns' uh, most ambitious. It took 10 years to put this together. Why 10 years? I mean, when you hear that, I mean, that, that is an awful lot of time to devote to a topic. But why did it take so long? Well, it's an incredible privilege to be able to tackle a subject like this and to be able to present it on public television. And that is where we are allowed to have this much time to take such a deep dive into this topic, which really almost um, evaded us. It's so hard to get your arms around. So we started thinking about it um, in 2006. We had to do some fundraising. We had to write proposals. We had to figure out kind of what the lay of the land was. And we started really production in earnest in 2010. And it's the work of many, many people over a long period of time to identify the ordinary people, so-called, that we wanted to interview and sort of build our story around. And we decided early on from the very beginning that we would not make the mistake that um, so often Americans make when thinking about the Vietnam War, which is we think about ourselves. We knew it was extraordinarily important to include the perspectives of the Vietnamese on all sides of the war, the people who won the war, the people who lost the war, as well as Americans of every possible uh, conviction and persuasion and experience. So we have interviews with people who were in the Marines, in the Army, in the Air Force. We have people who protested the war. We have families that were divided by the war. We have talked to people who went to Canada and people who regretted not going to Canada, and journalists and nurses and doctors and prisoners of war. And just an enormously wide range of perspectives. Our, our sense from the beginning was that this is such a painful chapter in our history and it's so important to understanding who we are as a country that we needed to take the time to really understand it. You just described why it is so difficult or was so difficult to get your arms around it because there are so many different aspects of it. And for the very first time, maybe, we are hearing in film or seeing in fil on film uh, the North Vietnamese perspective, uh, as you mentioned, uh, some of the civilians in Vietnam, uh, the Viet Cong, the North Vietnamese Army. But... Uh, is this something that could have been done, say, 20 years ago? Or did it take 40 years for those wounds to heal that we finally can make a film about Vietnam? Mm. Well, um, I think I, I would love to ask Sarah Botstein, our producer, also to speak about this. But, you know, we, we decided to make this film because we don't think the wounds actually have healed. They may have scarred over, and I don't want to uh, beat this metaphor to death, but... We have the sense this is kind of unfinished business, that it's a very traumatic event for our country, both for the soldiers and for the entire <clears throat> population, because we became so divided about the war and so confused and conflicted about what happened. And we've never really been able to have an informed conversation about it and come to any kind of shared understanding. And so uh, we agree it has been uh, the passage of time makes it possible for the veterans and the people who were against the war and everybody in between to take a deep breath and take a look back and 
try to make sense of this with us and also to have the access that we had in Vietnam. That would not have been possible 20, 25 years ago. Sarah, I want to follow up on that. Uh, When uh, Lynn says that uh, the emotions are still raw, Uh, We here at WITF, we've had a series of uh, previews with live audiences, and it's become quite obvious that uh, those emotions are are very raw for many people. I mean, there are people that you can tell 40 years have gone by and they've accepted uh, their roles in in the Vietnam story. But we had a preview here last night where uh, a veteran was was very upset. So when, when Lynn says that it is unfinished business, from your point of view, talk about that. Well, I think it's, it's very um, painful and raw and complicated chapter in our history. So when people, uh, you know, we've had the experience on the road, and I think you're speaking to what happened where last night at an event, when people look at footage from that time, hear music from that time, listen to other people's experiences, stories, perspectives from that time, they're brought sort of viscerally right back to how they felt then. And oftentimes, those are very painful memories of a divided nation, a nation at war, a nation who, where politicians and its citizenry were in a state of turmoil and flux. And so, you know, I think we've, some of the people we've interviewed have said to us that, you know, when you come of age and you're in that period of your life, it's a very heightened, very raw, very visceral time to think about. And so when you're put back in that time, um, I think emotions can run high. And um, it is it is it is a complicated time for us and for our country. I think visceral is the perfect word for how some people have, have reacted to it. And what you described is that this era, and if you want to refer to it as a moment in someone's life, it, it defined their lives for those who fought in Vietnam, those who protested against it. Many of the people who lived through that era, this is the time of their lives that they remember the most. This is what defined them in many cases. Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah. Well, go ahead. Go ahead, Sarah. Sorry. We're not in the same place. Go Bye. ahead. No, no, finish. Oh, well, you know, I think this is a sort of challenge of um, living your life. The human condition is that these moments define you and that you can't be weighed down by them forever. Um, I was recently in Vietnam showing the film uh, to people there. We've had the whole film subtitled into Vietnamese, and we're going to be able to stream it on PBS, and the Vietnamese people can see it. And we were showing some scenes, and one of the um, people who came to a screening, his family had fled from the uh, North Vietnamese um, takeover in 1975 when the South Vietnam basically disintegrated. And watching scenes from that really horrific experience, he said, you know, I'm not going to sleep tonight. I remember those days, and, you know, I've just tried to put them in a drawer and forget about it and live my life and just focus on the good thing. But watching this film made me realize that you just can't do that. And, you know, that's sort of a central question here, that these very painful experiences have defined people's lives. They've also been really powerful, positive experiences for some people, um, depending on what happened to them. But the challenge of living is to negotiate you know, what happened to you then and who you are now and how you go forward. I'm curious, uh, when I wasn't aware that uh, this had been uh, shown in Vietnam, other than that one person you described, and what was reaction to the film? Right, well, we haven't shown it, you know, to, right, we were doing some screenings, like your screening. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, it's going to be, when the film is streamed on PBS.org starting on Sunday, September 17th, it will also be available to be streamed in Vietnam. So that's when the Vietnamese the whole country has a chance to see it. Mm. Um, so we were basically doing the same thing that you just have been doing there. And the reactions have been really um, profound in that the people there uh, feel they don't know much about the war, really. They know the sort of official government narrative, which doesn't have a lot of humanity in it. It's a very abstracted, sort of um, almost mythological tale of victory without any true acknowledgement of the human cost and the Vietnamese lost million people, as many as one million soldiers on the winning side, a quarter of a million soldiers on the losing side, and untold millions of civilians. And they just don't sort of represent the war to themselves that way. And our film does go into all of that in great detail. 
So and, it was sort of revelatory for them to see images of North Vietnamese soldiers' bodies and the suffering that people on the losing side experienced. So and that, that uh, their is, eyes are open. That is one thing in the film that uh, is mentioned. Uh, there is uh, a North Vietnamese who said... Uh, we just don't talk about the war, and that's a big part of what happened here in America as well, is that uh, we, we, for a long, long time, we didn't talk about the war. The film is very intense. Lynn, um, you know, some of the emotions that I see actually as people are viewing the, the, the preview and uh, talking about it afterwards, I mean, you can see tears, you can see people, their body language that... Uh, that whether they were there or not, that it's having an impact on it. But what do we learn? What haven't we heard over the years in film, in books, that we will learn in this series? Hmm. Wow. Well, um, Ken and Sarah and I like to say that we as filmmakers learned an enormous amount. We thought we knew a lot about the war, and every day was a revelation. Um, We learn a great deal about the experiences of the Vietnamese, which Americans have never really had a chance to learn. We understand a great deal more about what was going on inside the White House and the Pentagon because we have made great use of the secret recordings that President Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon made of their private conversations and reflections about what was happening in real time as the war was progressing. And you hear Kennedy expressing doubt and regret. You hear Johnson expressing tremendous angst about what he feels he has no choice but to do, which is to prosecute the war and escalate it, even though he doesn't feel it will work and he doesn't feel it's in our nation's best interest in many ways. And you hear Ken- Nixon and Kissinger sort of strategizing about how to get America out of Vietnam without having it look like we surrendered or um, lost. And so you have intimate understanding of our leaders, and they come across, we think, as sort of human beings and flaws and frailties and egos, and you know, they're, they're sort of brought down to earth in, in a certain way, and they basically populate the film along with the quote-unquote ordinary people. And I have to tell you that uh, that is one of the most fascinating aspects of the film that I found was those tape recordings of the presidents uh, talking uh, on the telephone about uh, uh, about the war. And, uh, you know, Johnson in particular, especially up to up to Tet in 68, when uh, General William Westmoreland, the commander in Vietnam, was just obsessed with body counts and how we were winning the war and we won't be there you know, with the end is in sight. And, you know, we won't be there much longer and all that. And Johnson bit it, you know, he, he, he believed everything Westmoreland was telling him, and it was far from the truth. And that's portrayed in the film as well. Uh, yeah, um, he believed it, and that was at his peril, I suppose. Or he wanted to believe it. You know, it's hard to say. I think it's um, there's a lot of groupthink here and wishful thinking, magical thinking even, and also just wanting to kick the can down the road. Mm-hmm. You know, hope that it's not going to happen on your watch. That that's that's not a small factor here. Let's take a phone call from Jim in Enola. Jim, you're on the air. Hi, Scott, Hi. and uh, hello to your guests. Uh, I wanted to talk very briefly about my experiences, and and you were just talking about President Johnson, and I wanted to say a little bit about uh, about him as well. Uh, my situation was that I did not fight in Vietnam because I was extremely lucky when when student deferments were uh, eliminated in, I believe, 1973, I was subject to the lottery, and I got a, I'll never forget my exact lottery number, which was 185, and if it had been lower than about 100, I would have gone to Vietnam, uh, and uh, I was deeply conflicted about, about Vietnam. I would have gladly fought uh, and died if necessary in World War II, but I just thought uh, that the Vietnam War was senseless uh, and uh, really did not want to go and, and had a, would have had a very tough decision to make, as so many uh, American uh, young men had to make. Uh, and I was, I was obviously so much luckier than, than the ones who, uh, who, who went there and either died or were, were severely injured. Uh, about President Johnson, I think in many ways President Johnson will go down in history as in some sense, our best president, and in some sense, one of our worst presidents. The anti-poverty programs, the civil rights programs were incredible, were wonderful. And then his incredible blind spot concerning Vietnam, uh, you know, he, with the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, he essentially put us in war uh, under false pretenses. And as you were just saying, he 
was accepting everything that General Westmoreland was saying, lock, stock, and barrel, and uh, it just it just uh, really eroded the faith that we Americans had in our government, and it's it's uh, the legacy of that uh, continues to this day. So uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity to comment. All right, Jim. Thank you very much. Lynn, you know, Jim said a lot there, and uh, you can comment on almost anything. But one thing Mm -hmm. that he said at the end, one thing he said at the end that I did want to ask the two of you about is that Vietnam was kind of the beginning when Americans started to question their government and not take everything as uh, 100% truth. And you portray that in the movie, don't you? Yeah, Sarah, why don't you jump in? Yeah. Yeah, I think several of the people that we interview in the film actually explicitly talk about that and how until this moment, um, until the the Vietnam War really escalated and the American citizens began to understand that what they were being told and what was happening were not always the same, we had, I think for the most part, lived in a country where we didn't question our president in the same way that we do now, and that is definitely a legacy of the Vietnam War, something that people on all sides of the discussion around Vietnam tend to agree about. And as Lynn was saying earlier, I think the the White House tapes and the Pentagon Papers and sort of declassified information that's come to us over the last 40 years proves that, but that people felt that then and that is still something that we as a country are grappling with today. One of the one I just I would just add one more thought because it's so relevant to today as Sarah's saying is that you know what started in Vietnam you could one could argue we had sort of a naive and maybe um, idealistic faith in our leaders that they were um, competent, honest, and well intended, and that they would do what was best for the country and that they would tell us the truth. And over time, because of all the things Sarah said, that sort of all those things leached away, and it began as skepticism, and then there was something called the credibility gap, and then by the time you end up with Watergate and the Pentagon Papers and the aftermath of Vietnam, tremendous cynicism, uh, you know, that they can't be trusted, that they never tell the truth. And that cynicism, we feel, is sort of a corrosive, um, toxic brew that's eating away at our faith in ourselves in some ways, because our leaders reflect who we are, too. We elect them. And then if they are bad people who can't be trusted, what does that say about us? And so there's a sort of a cognitive dissonance between who we Americans want to be and then who we sometimes think our leaders are, and that is causing some of the really profound rancor and sort of disunion that we're facing today. Mm-hmm. And, as it, and, and as we've been talking about a lot, as we've been going around the country sort of explaining the film, so much of what we see going on today can actually be traced back to the Vietnam era, and this is one of the central things. The others are, you know, a profound class divide, racial and ethnic tensions, um, questions about patriotism, who's a real American. Because as the caller was saying, you know, he felt the war was wrong. He didn't want to serve. He might have tried to avoid it. Luckily, he didn't have to make that choice, but many, many, many young men did. And they were faced with, you know, profound angst-ridden questions about what does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to love your country? And do you say my country right or wrong, love it or leave it? Or do you say my country is not doing the right thing and I don't think that I should be part of it? I should actually you know, take some kind of stand against what our leaders who we've just described are not telling us the truth. You know, they don't deserve my blind allegiance. There's no easy answers here, but these are the questions that the Vietnam story raises, and that's why people are still so um, unsettled about it. And I know I'm preaching to the choir, and probably (laughs) the same thing with our audience, but this is why history and telling stories like this is so important. Let's take a phone call now from Mike in Harrisburg. Mike, you're on the air. Hey, um, you know, I've seen a lot of movies about Vietnam. Uh, Personally, my draft number was 18, and I took the oath in the Navy the day after I graduated from high school. But what I've come to find out is the way we got into Vietnam, which is almost never addressed, started in World War II. When this country promised Ho Chi Minh that if he would support us against the Japanese, that we would support Vietnam and having the French leave Vietnam. And after, the, after World War II, we broke that promise, reneged on it, supported the French, and that led eventually to the very famous Battle of Dien Bien Phu. And we went down the road after the French were forced out to fill that void, 
and it was all corrupt, it was all illegal, it borders on war crimes, even up to the falsification with the uh, Gulf of Tonkin incident. And this is almost never addressed when talking about these periods or these leaders of ours who did this. Well, and we saw that replicated in Iraq. Hey, Mike, thank you very much for your call. And, uh, Lynn, that is discussed, that is addressed uh, in this film, isn't it? Yes, exactly. And we, you know, thank you for that call. Um, there are a lot of um, misunderstandings and sort of complexities that have not come down to us about how, what happened, how we got into Vietnam, into the war there. And our, epi- our first episode details all the things the caller just described, not, not, uh, not to the Gulf of Tonkin, but the early history of the French experience there, how we got involved. Um, there's, this is, we see this as an epic tragedy with many, many chapters, and at many points along the way, there were, you know, opportunities to not get deep, more deeply involved. And 1945, as World War II was ending, was one of such opportunity. But the Cold War happened, and our leaders um, felt that it was more important to see the Vietnam uh, conflict as something to do with the Cold War and not an anti-colonial movement. And, of course, it was both. There were communists leading the anti-colonial movement there. And I don't want to get too into the weeds here, but suffice to say, you know, um, we say in our film, in the introduction, that the war was begun in good faith by decent people. And, you know, that's, that is a, an important point to think about, that we, we can't solely judge the actions of our leaders in 1945 by what we know today. They didn't know everything that we know. On the other hand, however we begun it, we went very badly wrong relatively quickly and sort of lost our way morally and as a country. And we're still paying the price for that. And would one of you uh, describe the Gulf of Tonkin? Because I, that is very striking. I mean, Americans, over the years, we have learned that the Gulf, Gulf of Tonkin, that we were misled, and President Johnson was even misled somewhat, the Gulf of Tonkin, but there was some miscommunication, that mistakes made that led to this horrendous war. And just if you would briefly describe what actually happened in the Gulf of Tonkin. Well... That's a tricky one because we have a major scene about that in our third episode. It's a very complex event. We feel we've told it in a way it's never been told with the perspective of the North Vietnamese as well as declassified documents, new scholarship, audio recordings of President Johnson and Secretary McNamara on the phone discussing what to do. But I think one thing that's important to think about is to take a little bit of a step back and realize that South Vietnam was on the precipice that the insurgency, the communist revolution was on the verge of um, taking over the country. They had really conquered most of the countryside and the South Vietnamese government was very much on the ropes and the military was not executing well. And there's a whole lot of reasons why. So it was a serious crisis building by the time the Gulf of Tonkin incident so-called happened in August of 64. And before it even happened, President Johnson had asked uh, McGeorge Bundy, the National Security Advisor, to draft a resolution that he could send to Congress, giving him the war powers he needed to escalate the war. And they were basically waiting for the opportunity to get America more deeply involved, because they thought if they didn't do that, South Vietnam would no longer exist. Mm-hmm. So the Gulf of, whether the Gulf of Tonkin had happened or not, um, <laughs> and what happened is extremely complicated, and we will explain all that in the film, it's hard to imagine that we wouldn't have gotten involved more deeply regardless. But just... I would just add to that that I think the discussion we've had from the caller and what Lynn is just saying, and your question is the first three episodes really deal with a lot of those themes and questions and ideas. And so we look forward to next Wednesday when uh, the country will have seen those episodes. Mm. Well, <laughs> exactly. I want to thank the, both of you. Lynn Novick is the co-director and Sarah Botstein is the executive producer of the Vietnam I'm, War. I'm actually not. I'm just a producer. Ken is our executive oh, producer. I wouldn't okay. want to get that wrong out in the world. Hey, we, um, we know I the cr- film with Ken and Lynn, <laughs> but um, the executive producer is Ken. <laughs> All right. Just love it when I get the wrong title here. But anyway, no, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we gave you a promotion anyway. But uh, yeah. I want to I thank the two of you for being with us today and very much look forward to seeing the premiere of the film uh, this Sunday night at 8 on WITF-TV and PBS across the country. Thank you very much. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. 
Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, bringing quality care to your community through Harrisburg, Community General Osteopathic, and West Shore Hospitals. More information on our locations is available at pinnaclehealth.org. The Vietnam War obviously is a uh, huge project uh, for Ken Barnes, uh, Lynn Novick, and uh, Sarah Botstein. And obviously it's something that uh, I know a lot of people are looking forward to. Here at WITF, we have produced uh, a number of um, well, what, two TV documentaries that will be coming up, as well as a number of uh, radio features that uh, you probably have already heard on WITF-FM. And uh, it's all related to the Vietnam War. And want to take this opportunity to thank the supporters, Saul Ewing, the Harrisburg Law Office of Saul Ewing, LLP, and Willow Valley Communities. Uh, they have just uh, provided tremendous support for us as uh, we have worked very hard on uh, and uh, devoted a lot of attention to uh, the Vietnam War and even what we're doing here locally. But this is the kind of thing that we do here at WITF. Uh, I'm joined by WITF's Multimedia News Director, Tim Lambert. Tim, uh, you've been very much involved in uh, what we're doing here locally with uh, the Vietnam War. Just a tremendous project. Yeah, yeah. It's been great, uh, especially for me, uh, coming of age uh, a little bit after the the war had ended. So I didn't know a lot about the history and, and having had a chance to watch an hour of the documentary from Ken Burns, uh, I learned a lot in just that hour. So 18 hours, I can only imagine. But it's been great to get out in the community, talk about this 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 signature event, really, in American history, uh, turbulent times uh, in the 60s and 70s, and to hear different perspectives about um, about people's experiences and their perspectives with the war. And this morning you heard a story that I produced with a veteran as we uh, were on an honor bus trip to the wall and how he was visibly and emotionally attacked attached to the names on that wall, the Vietnam Memorial, more than 58,000 names of the men and women killed in the war. Uh, and then, uh, you know, he he, he, he talked about a, a soldier who had lost his life in his arms, the first casualty he's ever seen. And then uh, he always wanted to talk to a family member to say, hey, this is the last... I'm the last person that uh, your your brother saw alive, and he finally got a chance to talk to the sister. Uh, so it was just an honor and a pleasure to be able to tell that story uh, to Central Pennsylvania. And if that is something that you want more of each and every time, if you want uh, a context to a story, if you want analysis to a story, you want historical perspective, support public radio right now. If you want conversations that are going to take you outside of your bubble, that, <coughs> that are going to be respectful to you and your views, call 1-800-233-9483. Make a contribution of $5 a month, of $10 a month, of a dollar a day in support of the programming you hear each and every day. Scott, we're under $30,000 to go to reach our overall goal by tomorrow. So now's the time to call. We still have some matching money left, it looks like, for Morning Edition. So your contributions will be matched dollar for dollar at 800-233-9483. You know, something you just said about reaching out in the community. I don't know whether people realize or not, and and this is not patting ourselves on the back, about the amount of time and effort that that we do put into reaching out to the community. You just talked about riding that bus to to Washington, D.C. and getting to talk to so so many people. Uh, We've had four events, uh, preview events for the Vietnam War, where there's been at least 50 people at each one. Last night here at the Public Media Center, there were over 150 people. And it was very emotional for not only those who had fought in Vietnam, but uh, for we had uh, a woman on our panel who was a, a protester at the time, we, and that's what this 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 film does is show all sides of it. But Tim, behind the scenes, we are doing those things on a daily basis, reaching out to the community and talking to people, and you know, hearing their stories. Something that always strikes me here at WITF is storytelling because that's what we're all about. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's being lost a little bit in this media age. Uh, you, you're you, you don't have the the time 
time that uh, people put into stories here, like we do at WITF. Uh, I think people think journalism now is people sitting and making phone calls and then aggregating other stories they see and never really interacting with anybody. And some of the events that I've been out, I've always asked people, hey, have you ever met a journalist before? <laughs> and, and the answer is mostly no, uh, because that the people just aren't on the ground as much as they used to be. And, and we try to be as much as we can. And, uh, you know, we have, uh, thanks to your support, we have the largest radio news operation in central Pennsylvania, and we want to keep growing it. And your contributions allow us to do that. So if you make that contribution now at WITF.org or 1-800-233-9483, you can make that $5 a month contribution and pick up uh, a public radio nerd pint glass that everyone's been going nuts for. Uh, you can, you can you know, $10 a month, $20 a month, a dollar a day, whatever fits into your budget. But show your support right now. Stand with us and stand with the kind of journalism you expect each and every day. It is funny how uh, how popular those uh, public radio nerd glasses, pint glasses. Yeah, just don't become. get one. Make it a you know, make it a, a twenty dollar a month you, contribution. Get four. I you, mean, use them at Thanksgiving dinner. Bring them to the to the news and brews. Bring them <laughs> to the news right. and brews. That's what one of the volunteers said. Great idea. Well, Tim Lambert, uh, we'll be talking with you again in just a few minutes. Sure, Scott. I want to thank uh, Tim for being with us. But uh, yeah, it, it, it it's. I have to smile because uh, uh, th- those are very handsome glasses. Put it that way. They say public uh, media nerd or public radio nerd and uh, for a contribution of uh, sixty dollars you can uh, you you can uh, claim your your public media nerd glass as well pint glass uh, so <laughs> want to move on here a, a little bit one of the things that uh, is going on this week and actually starting uh, tomorrow and going through Wednesday it's the fourth annual Harrisburg Hershey Film Festival uh, starts Friday at the Midtown cinema in downtown Harrisburg the festival will showcase 75 shorts feature length and documentary films by filmmakers from around the world this has become a big event uh, the festival connects local uh, filmmakers with industry professionals and promotes independent cinema here in central Pennsylvania. Joining us to discuss the four-day festival are Hamza Ahmed, founder of the Harrisburg Hershey Film Festival, and Hal Kramer, program director for the festival. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you very much for having us. Good to be here. You know, I, I have to think back, and I, I'm talking about the, I was just thinking about the success as I was reading that, uh, Hamza, and was it the first year that you were here, or was it the second year? Uh, we were here both years. Actually. Okay, I was going to yeah. say, I thought this, so. This is actually, just a correction, sorry, this is actually our third year. This is uh, your third year. Yeah. <laughs> okay, all right. So, when the, 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 I think back to the first year when you were just getting your start and, uh, you know, you were looking forward to, uh, you know, bringing world-class film festival here to uh, central Pennsylvania. And now, uh, just a few years later, was more than 75 films? Yeah, 75 films. We actually had more even submissions this year than our first two years combined. So, like, we're in, in every way we've grown. So um, the first year was, like, you know, a, a three-day festival. This time it's a almost a six-day festival. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we're definitely – there's a lot of – we're seeing a lot of growth in – uh, films that are coming to us and you know the response that we're getting from people that are coming to the festival and so it's definitely growing really fast actually and I actually still consider ourselves uh, at in that sort of uh, startup phase like we're still kind of getting our footing and kind of like trying to adjust to everything that people are are telling us like uh, give the feedback that we're getting and trying to just kind of like get it right uh, and I think that it might still be another year or two that we, we really feel comfortable with the structure of it and everything. But well, just the length of time does show how much uh, growth there has been. But at the same time, one of the things I've noticed is that this is truly international. I mean, mm-hmm. you have films coming from around the world, right? Yeah, absolutely. We have um, we have a, a several films from Germany. We have a film this year from um, from Finland, we have uh, films from. We have a film from Luxembourg. We have films from like everywhere. Like uh, it, honestly, like you look at the list of submissions that we have, and there's probably like uh, maybe like thirty or forty countries that films came from. Like not just the United States. So. The the marquee documentary we have actually is uh, Ethiopia by Tuk Tuk, which is an Italian film, yeah. and that's uh, I believe the lead on Sunday in the yeah. afternoon block. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, Hal Kramer, and I have to provide a little context here. Hal has uh, worked here at WITF for <laughs> last few years and actually brought this to my attention uh, a few years ago. So, how, from your vantage point as program director, what have you seen over the last three years? I have seen so much growth with this film festival. Like, I think Hamza mentioned the submissions grew, but uh, 
the accepted movies, uh, it's more than the first two years combined at this point. We have 32 or 33 hours worth of material we're showcasing over these days. Uh, attendance has gone up. And the overall festival experience has really expanded, too. Something we were very proud about specifically was uh, on Film Freeway, which is kind of the big festival site on the Internet, we were voted in the top 100 festival experiences in the world just after our second season. Really? Yeah. I, I mean, that's something to be proud of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's it's one of those lists that they kind of, like, reset every month, and it's based on, like, um, the filmmakers and their, their experience with festivals. And we actually maintained uh, our position in, like, the 50s on that list for, like, uh, several months. Um, and hopefully, like, as new filmmakers come in and they start reviewing our festival, like, we make it back to that list for next year too so i'm going to ask some of the the, the basic questions like uh, why a film festival here in uh, central pennsylvania uh, i i think it's something i mentioned a, a couple years ago and it, it still sticks with me like um as a i'm also a filmmaker so as a filmmaker to me it felt like there was just this kind of hole of like um a, a lack of independent uh cinema in this area um and that's something that over the last few years, people that are familiar with the Midtown Cinema itself, like they've seen uh, the Midtown Cinema bring that culture in a little bit. Um, but there's really nothing like a film festival for independent cinema. And I think that this, uh, it, for me, it's, it's uh, and someone that who, who has lived in New York and I think Hal's been, lived in LA, like we've seen film festivals, like we understand what they are, like we've been to plenty. And, um, they they're just like unique experiences like you get to see all kinds of films that uh nobody's ever heard of and like p the films that eventually maybe even will become uh films that people have heard of like i mean last year we had an oscar nominated film a uh, short film in the festival and uh this year we have a couple films that only finished their production this year so like they've really not been seen by that many people yet mm -hmm. so how i want to make the distinction between independent and those that uh, are supported by the big name hollywood <laughs> studios or even the studios from around the world what's different between an independent film and uh, those other films well the the definition of an independent film is pretty broad it's basically just something produced outside of the hollywood mainstream but nowadays you have lots of movies that are independent that are like 10 to 30 million dollar budgets. I believe all the movies in this festival are operated on micro budgets. Yeah. Like micro budgets. <laughs> yeah, that's uh it's a classification by like the unions um that determine like how much different like actors or crew people will get paid. Um they have like restrictions on like uh, this is a micro-budget film, this is a low-budget film, this is a normal, like... Uh, mm -hmm. So basically, movies that are have, like, generally 250,000 or less budgets are micro-budgets. Mm -hmm. so. not, it's not a uh, commentary on the quality of the film, it's just how much money was spent mm -hmm. to make the film. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, right. a, lot of, a lot of it's... Um, they're sa the same professionals that work on bigger productions, and sometimes they're they've like sacrificed their time uh and not getting paid for what they're doing sometimes See, but like the reason i ask that question is that i mean yeah it only makes sense but uh from time to time you'll see one uh, someone describe uh, a film as a low budget film and there was like there's some kind of negative connotation with that there's not necessarily that so mm -hmm. how getting back to what you were talking about the broad uh, definition of independent yeah, it feels like, uh, especially as Oscar season rolls around, pretty much every movie that becomes an Oscar contender is sort of an independent movie because it's produced outside of that mainstream. But a lot of these still have very high budgets, so that's the big distinction between the movies that are in this festival. In fact, uh, one of the movies that opens the festival is a uh, small-budget independent movie that Hamza produced about a year ago. Yeah, it, uh, it's called Romance in the Digital Age, and... Um I worked on it uh, last year, uh, mostly last year and even this year we worked on post-production a lot of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's considered a low-budget film, but the budget of it actually is close to $200,000. So like, I mean, it's really not that, in terms of like actual money, it's really not that low. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, someone's $200,000 so may sound low, but <laughs> yeah. not to the rest of us, you know? Exactly. And, uh, Especially when you're trying to raise the money for it, right? No, for sure. I mean, and, and there's a lot of, like, um, times where uh, 
we don't necessarily cut corners, but we like have to think critically and think like outside the box a little bit. I mean, I know that's kind of a cliche thing to say, but um, when you're on these uh, production sets, you, like you can't throw money at a lot of the problems, so you have to think very structured and like it. it so when an independent film, to me, when an independent film does something like it, it achieves something in cinematography or um, even sometimes visual effects, which is another big point about a lot of the films in this festival, it's it's significantly more ex- impressive to me. Like, uh, you know, you expect um, something like the Transformers movies to you know have great visual effects, but when you see something similar in a in a small budget film, you it it's really a lot more impressive because they didn't have that money to throw at the problem. And there is a one of the movies that I liked the best in this festival, by the way, was Might, and that was a movie. That uh, what is it? Eight or ten minutes long? Something? Yeah, like? I think it's like. Uh, I, I mean, I, we could look at it. Um, I, I want to say it's like short. ten or eleven. Yeah, eight it's, not eight minutes and fifty three seconds. It's a short, but it's produced, I think, on quality with some of the biggest Hollywood blockbusters. Like Hamza said, uh, it was like maybe fifty to sixty thousand dollars they spent on this movie. It's international too. It's yeah, from, it's from Finland. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Our guest uh, during this portion of the program, Hamza Ahmed, who is founder of the Harrisburg Hershey Film Festival, and Hal Kramer is program director for the festival. If you have a question or a comment, maybe you have a question about trends in uh, filmmaking, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. So that is a question that I did want to ask. When you get you, the two of you get to see these films, and you've done it now for so many years mm-hmm. are there trends out there or is it is there just a, is it all over the place and when i say that i mean and i don't mean that in a negative way meaning that there's just a lot of different topics a lot of different content well, do you see any trends i think i mean a lot of times uh some sometimes uh, the oscars sort of set the trend um a, a one independent film will win an oscar and it'll be you know uh like a dark drama of some sort and so like you'll see a trend of a bunch of independent dark dramas um but you know there are still films that are very consistent like a a, you know drama and comedy those are very consistent films anyways so um but i think the the, this year we noticed the kind of an uphill tick in sci-fi and sort of more fantastical elements um films that had like uh you know time travel elements or like random things that you're watching the movie and you you suddenly don't expect it and suddenly there's like an element that um is very science fiction or suddenly there's an element that's very fantasy and um that's something we notice a lot this year um and you know not every one of those films gets into the festival but some of them do i mean some of them the production value and the acting and all those things kind of like just glue together really well and and they really appeal to us and we definitely accept those films what what kind of quality what what are you looking for as far as criteria goes to be entered into the festival well i think one of the big things is that we project these films at the midtown cinema which who they have a, a you know a great um sort of state of the art projector system like uh, an actual cinema projector system um so some of those kind of like really low budget uh films don't translate well and we know that these aren't going to look good or sound good or um and sometimes you know the the films just happen to be really good and we'll take them and we'll accept the faults that they have but uh, a lot of times you know we look at the production value and we look at um a lot of those things like is the acting good is like uh stuff that you know isn't technical sometimes and it's very like subjective on our part but we and we have a bunch of people actually that watch these films not just the two of us so um and they all have their different opinions about different things so um one person will watch a film and give it a rating and then somebody else will like look at it and say like you know, you gave this an eight, but I would give this a six or something like that. And yeah. um, so, sometimes we take unfinished movies too. Like uh, if a movie is, has not quite gone through the finalizing of a post-production process, but looks really good, sometimes they'll submit with the idea of getting accepted while they're finishing the movie mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And that's a very sometimes risky thing also mm-hmm. on our part because you know we have to accept the films in July, and so we know that they have until September to actually finish the film and give it to us. But also, you know, if it's filmmaking, sometimes is a, is a crapshoot a little bit. Like, you don't know if it's actually going to get done. 
in that much time. So uh, we have to accept it like uh, how it is sometimes. So when you were talking about the acting and uh, the cinematography, all those things, uh, are there films? And I'm sure there are, but maybe tell me about a few uh, that you've you viewed and you say, oh, this is going to be big. Whether you know, we're talking about commercially at the box office, don't know about that, but that you've seen an actor and you said, this person, he or she, has uh, a bright career ahead of them. Have you seen that in, in the films over the last three years? I think for sure. I mean, there's a, a lot of, I mean, sometimes there are films in the festival that there are, there are actors in these films that, you know, people will recognize from other things. Like, it's not that these are like nobodies. Right, right, right. Um, but there are definitely some films that uh, there may be even sometimes the first acting role that person's ever had. Like maybe somebody made a film and, you know, cast their grandmother in it. Or, you know, I mean, some kind of like... Grandma who is yeah. a natural. <laughs> yeah, who just happens to be a natural. It happens more often than you'd think. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and so we sometimes, a lot of times we're, when we're looking up these films, um, especially when we're compiling the data for all the films, um we start looking up like the actors and seeing maybe like what they're from and stuff and we can't find any credits for them and, and we realize like oh this is like a complete newcomer and they just happen to be like a, a great actor how you were quick to mention that uh, are there examples I mean are there examples in films that uh, someone has been cast and uh, they don't have a big resume they, that they're just a natural? I think that's just an experience I've had working in films in general not specifically with a uh, Harrisburg Hershey Film Festival but Hamza and I have been making movies together since we were what 14. Yeah. And so cool. <laughs> a lot of times we'll just cast somebody because uh you know they happen to be around and they just get being on camera like they get the presence they get how to project themselves. And the inverse happens, too. Sometimes you'll have a seasoned, uh, especially stage actor, who just gets lost on camera because the medium is totally different. But it's always really refreshing to find somebody who just really shines on camera, and it was something they didn't know about themselves before they stepped in front of your independent little movie. You know, a few minutes ago, I asked about trends. Uh, as the two of you know, I mean, we are in a society today that uh, you know, politics is, is very much in front of uh, the, the news. We live in a divided country. Uh, I'm curious about document, document, uh, documentaries. There, I'll get the word out. <laughs> documentaries, or is there a trend in film of people doing something that uh, it has to do with the news or current events? Uh, I'm not sure with in regards to this festival. Uh, a little bit. I mean, we have a, fe a f uh, film, a documentary film called uh, Triple Divide Redacted, which is about um, fracking in Pennsylvania. We have a film about the coal mine fires um, also in Pennsylvania. I mean, like, there are um, those. We specifically sometimes will take documentaries also that are more pertinent to w what's going on, like, locally. Um because I think those appeal to our audiences a lot uh, better sometimes. Um, but, you know, there... And this year, I think there's also a filmmaker who uh, submitted a documentary this year who, uh, in a previous year, had submitted a narrative film. So, like, he... Some, you know, is making sort of a transition into documentary films. And um, so there is a trend of documentaries, I think... Um, the, a lot of uh, you know Discovery Channel and the History Network, like all those TV stations. Yeah, PBS. Yeah. Um, well, PBS I think has always been known for right, documentaries, but right. I think the documentaries are becoming more popular and mainstream. And maybe even Netflix has something to do with that and giving mm -hmm. people more accessibility to them. Um, but one of the things that we're seeing as is a new like sort of five to ten minute documentary format that's very YouTube friendly. Um, and a lot of those are getting submitted to the festival more and more recently. So the festival begins uh, tomorrow, goes through Wednesday. Uh, what about tickets? How can uh, how can listeners uh, get get some tickets to it? Uh, well, there's a lot of options actually. I mean, we have um, uh, passes, which are uh, like a day pass or a two day or three day pass. Those give you access to all of the screening blocks in that time. Um, and we have generally there's three blocks a day. So if you get a day pass, you get to see all the films that day. Uh, or you can go um, through Midtown Cinema directly and buy just one block, uh, which is, you know, whatever the nine dollar uh, ticket fee is. Gentlemen, and, thank you very much for being with us today and good luck you. with the festival. Thank you so thank much. You very much. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar.
And you're listening to Smart Talk on WITF 89.5 and 93.3. I'm Tim Lambert. Just going to take the last couple of minutes of the show right now to talk to you a little bit about the importance of becoming an active participant with your public media station in central Pennsylvania. Become a member to WITF by making a donation in support of the programming you hear each and every day. The support of the programming that brings you information about local film festivals, that brings you information about a national documentary that is coming out this Sunday by Ken Burns. The news and information that tells you what's happening in Florida, what's happening in Texas. Texas is in rebuild mode already and, and cleaning up after Harvey. We have Irma in Florida that has uh, the wreaked havoc there as well. And cleanup efforts are now beginning there. We hope that you'll make that contribution if that's the kind of storytelling you want to hear each and every day at 1-800-233-9483 or WITF.org. Make that $10 a month contribution, that $20 a month contribution, that $100 a month contribution in support of this programming at WITF.org or 1-800-233-9483. We are under $30,000 to go to reach our overall goal by 6.30 p.m. tomorrow. You can help us creep ever closer to reaching that goal by making that contribution now. Support the nuanced, balanced, uh, analytical reporting you hear each and every day. Support the reporters like Katie Meyer, who stayed up until 3 in the morning producing a story about the uh, the, bu- the ho- uh, budget plan that passed the State House last night. So support that uh, reporting. Support WITF. Show that uh, you appreciate the news and information you hear each and every day, the conversations you hear with Scott Lamar and his guests every day. Make that contribution at WITF.org or 1-800-233-9483. Tim, thank you very much for being with us this morning during Smart Talk. You got it, Scott. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, we look at some recent employment numbers that may surprise you. There are a lot of jobs out there that are going unfilled. That's uh, one part of uh, tomorrow's Smart Talk. We're also going to be talking with the author of a book who will be appearing in Harrisburg this weekend. has to do with Mexican drug cartels and horse racing and how much Money was laundered. That's coming up on uh, tomorrow's Smart Talk, so be sure to tune in. I'm Scott Lamar. Have yourself a great day, and I'll talk to you tomorrow morning. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org/spine.